Patients with a history of trauma or neglect are at increased risk for dissociative disorders. They are often hidden and remain undiagnosed even after years of treatment. How can a physician best understand these problems? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kai McDonald. He is an assistant clinical professor at the University of California at San Diego in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. McDonald is the medical director of Lasting Recovery Outpatient Substance Abuse Program, assistant medical director of the Psychiatry Consultation Liaison Service, and medical director of the clinical trials all at UCSD. He is boarded both in psychiatry and in family practice. Welcome to ReachMD, Kai. Thanks. Uh, glad to be here. Kai, what are dissociative disorders? I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember that term from psych, but can't remember the details. Great question, and it's unfortunately appropriate title for a group of disorders that's characterized by, I think that probably the best term is by odd disturbances in the way people's brains and minds work. It includes disturbances of identity, of memory, and of feeling kind of connected with the earth and the world around you. So it's a confusing cluster of problems. Hmm. It sounds almost physiologic, structural. Does neuroimaging help us at all? Well, that's a great question. Speaking from my personal opinion, I think neuroimaging, which for people in the other non-brain-based professions is akin to you know, what functional imaging of the heart does for us in understanding it, functional imaging has really shown us a lot about dissociative disorders and how they really are best understood as brain-based problems with how the brains of people function. I'm guessing that screening for dissociative disorders isn't real high on most physicians' lists. When should we start thinking about this as even a possible problem we should be looking for in our patients? That's probably the most useful strategy, Leslie, and it's a good question. Patients with significant trauma histories including our stalwart veterans who are returning from awful situations are often at risk. Also patients with substance use disorders, eating disorders, and then a class of patients that really bedevils a lot of primary medical doctors are people with unexplained somatic symptoms. All of those are high, have a higher risk of having a dissociative problem than you know, a general population. Now, worst case scenario, what's the risk if we miss a dissociative disorder in one of our patients? These are hidden disorders. They are silent, a little bit like attention deficit disorder or other problems that aren't so overt. They can sneak away. Probably the risk is decreased therapeutic benefit. And then essentially patient suffering, a lot of these patients have symptoms or problems like someone with an anxiety disorder, depressive disorder that's never been diagnosed, and essentially they just suffer in silence. So I think those are the two main difficulties. What are the common lookalikes for dissociative disorders? Yeah, that's another great question, and it helps kind of tie down what a dissociative disorder would look like. So a big one is drugs. Certain drugs like ketamine and marijuana can induce dissociative states. Those of us who, uh, those of you who lived and uh, partied in the 60s and 70s may actually have had some of these experiences. So drugs are a big one. Certain seizures can cause dissociative phenomenon. And then certain attentional problems, post-traumatic attentional problems, 
and certain psychotic disorders. Like I just saw actually a patient on the medical floor who thought she had one of the common popular dissociative disorders called multiple personality disorder. And she was convinced based on her psychotic delusion that she was another person and a little boy and she wasn't. And those are the, the main ones that a person would see in an outpatient type of practice. You mentioned seizures. I wonder, would temporal lobe seizures be especially problematic? That's one of the kinds that's been associated with dissociative phenomena. And again, I would say that's rare, but if that's the cause, you certainly want to catch that. Now, there was recently a paper just published that concluded that dissociative disorders in children often persist into adulthood. Would you agree with that? They tend to be like a lot of brain-based disorders, pernicious and lasting, and then they kind of have an accretion of subsequent problems. As I mentioned, eating disorders, personality disorders, anxiety disorders, substance use disorders, and whether that association is causal or associative is not clear, but again, they can tend to lie under the surface. I'm thinking about a patient who, when he finally got his alcohol use disorder under control, it became pretty obvious that he had a dissociative disorder related to a traumatic rape. And so, again, these can really fly under the surface of other more obvious disorders. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kai McDonald. We are discussing dissociative disorders. Kai, how do we treat these patients? For someone who is in a primary care or or non-psychiatric setting, I think the best thing to do is to really recognize that these exist, that they're brain-based disorders, and many consider them to be essentially a normal response to stress that's greater than a person's brain can bear, and do a little education. Say, you know, these kind of problems are not uncommon, and then if they're troubling to the patient and et cetera, then I think a referral to a mental health professional where they won't be so peculiar is appropriate at that point. Mental health professional, does this need to be a psychiatrist or are other therapists capable of dealing with these people? The primary treatments at this point are therapeutic. Although we're drilling into the biology of these problems, there aren't a lot of medication treatments that tend to be particularly useful per se, although anxiety-based treatments and other treating insomnia associated with them can help. A therapist who's used to dealing with patients with trauma will also be a very effective help to these patients. So is this necessarily leading them to a course of long-term psychotherapy, or is this something that can be handled in uh, managed care six or eight sessions? Depending on the severity of the symptoms, by and large, these are pretty pernicious problems. And I would say a six to eight session may be sufficient for psychoed. If you actually want resolution, I think it would, like a lot of more pernicious problems, would require a bit longer. Now, back to medication, you mentioned maybe some anti-anxiety medication or something to help with insomnia. What about other medications? I'm wondering especially about anticonvulsants or antidepressants. The only study that even discusses the treatment of dissociation that was positive uh, relates to an SSRI. And again, where you may see this most commonly is associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so treating that with an SSRI, at least by a single study, looked like it reduces the incidence of dissociation. I don't know of any trials with anticonvulsants that have conclusively reduced these phenomena. And there was a negative trial actually with lamictal. So 
it looks like one of the problems that medication is, at least at this point, isn't that impactful. So psychotherapy is the way to go. Now, Kai, you're doing some research at a dissociative anesthetic. Um, Tell us about that. Real interesting story, still very, very tentative. But there have been a couple of trials of using IV ketamine. And again, there were people in the 70s and 80s who played around with this and went into what's called the K-hole, which is a very altered dissociative perceptual experience caused by ketamine. But there have been some trials using this IV drug, which is currently used for burn victims and and other patients who need an anesthetic that doesn't put you down very deep. Uh, There are trials showing that it helps at least for a week, very short term, but very quickly with a severe major depressive disorder, treatment-resistant major depressive disorder. So very interesting, very tantalizing. The ugly downside is that it affects, at least by current literature, last a week only. And as you know, for a chronic disorder, that's not very reassuring, but it promises that this may be a, a good avenue for future, perhaps more acute onset antidepressants. That's the hope. What's the mechanism there? I don't, I'm not following the, the neurotransmitter chain. Great question. Ketamine works on NMDA systems, which are fairly complicated. It's essentially one of what would be called a glutamatergic agent. But like ECT, we still don't exactly know how ECT works. That's been the hypothesis is that maybe it's glutamatergic. So that's where the, where the thinking is at this point. And ketamine has to be given IV? That's how it's been studied. And there's some thoughts that it may be the IV delivery that's really critical, that acute onset. So that's the way the studies for depression have been done. So thinking about that for a minute, if a dissociative kind of precipitant like ketamine might work even temporarily for depression, is there any evidence that patients that have dissociative disorders are at less risk for having a major depressive episode? There's no data about that at all. And a temporary inducement of a dissociative phenomenon and the traumatic inducement, I I think, would probably be fairly different. The same way, for example, dissociative disorders are real interesting if you have any listeners who believe in the potential of hypnosis, mindfulness, being in the zone if you're in athletics. Those technically are healthy dissociative states. So do those have any relation with dissociative disorders? Well, at one level, they may in terms of neurobiology. At another level, healthy dissociation is induced by someone's intentional effort and traumatic dissociation is induced by awful circumstances. Mm -hmm. So a a little different, but there there is that interesting overlap. And too, it would make you wonder about the whole concept of suggestibility. Are there people at risk just because what the hypnotist people would say, they're highly suggestible, and perhaps people that aren't suggestible aren't vulnerable to dissociative disorders? It's another real interesting area that overlaps with placebo and all kinds of things. There is evidence that the temperament of people with dissociative disorders, that they're also prone to suggestibility and easily hypnotizable. And this is one of the things that's cast a dark shadow on dissociative disorders is that if you remember the whole uh, repressed memory nastiness. And so suggestibility, and then this is caused by trauma, and then, you know, there must have been something bad that happened to you. That whole specter has colored these difficulties in a negative way. So So is there any place for hypnosis in the treatment of these dissociative patients? Some people believe so. One of the troubles with hypnosis 
is its generalizability that does that mode of treatment give you better function outside the office. The cognitive behavior therapies you can imagine is one that's been shown to be useful for a dissociative disorder called depersonalization disorder. The treatment of multiple personality disorder is very multi-component, very complex, and really in the hands of ultra-specialists. But some people have suggested that hypnosis may be useful. Well, for people who want more information, Dr. McDonald published a very nice article about this in one of this summer's current psychiatry. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Leslie. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com. If you register with the promo code RADIO, you'll receive six months free streaming for your home or your office. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, please call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.